Welcome back to Hall Pass, the podcast. We are back for episode three, diving into the history of black cities, white resentment to those cities, and ultimately their destruction. In this episode, we'll dive into the history and symbolization of these towns, touching briefly on how vast they were in population, how they spanned across the entire country, and why they were seen as such a threat to society. Again, I'm your host, Jamal Andrus. As always, feel free to take out your cell phone for notes because every episode, we're diving into a different topic in our history that might not have made it in your textbook. I want to welcome to the Hall Pass podcast, Peter Cole and Franklin Cozy Gay, um, directors of the Chicago Race Riot of 1919 Commemoration Project. That's quite a name. Fellas, um, thank you all for being here. Um, I am also in Chicago. Uh, just tell me a little bit about uh, tell me a little bit about this project and and why it's so important. I mean, this is this is a history that that I think is seeing a resurgence right now. But you know, the idea that you all want to commemorate this thing and have been putting in that work um, since the hundred year anniversary is really noteworthy. So, uh, give me a little bit about the project. The short version is, is I teach this history because I believe it's deeply important as a historian of the U.S. and of African American history. But I know for a fact that in the 20 plus years of teaching that students don't. Um, I always say it's not their fault. Their parents don't know it. Their teachers aren't including them in those conversations. And so there's a widespread ignorance uh, about what remains the worst incident of racial violence in Chicago history, and which to this day continues to literally and figuratively shape our city. You know, as Peter described, and kind of what was implicit um, is that African-Americans, Blacks, were leaving the South, escaping racial terrorism, escaping Jim Crow segregation, and um, they came up to the North quickly to find out, although that there was not de jure segregation by law, there was de facto segregation. So in what ways did they see it in terms of constraint and containment in terms of where they could live, right? And so Bronzeville being one of those communities, you know, or what at the time was known as the Black Belt, and what was important for me, that my parents and my mom and dad talked to me about African American history, right? And so I, I was aware of the 1919 race riots, but there was a lot I didn't know. Peter and I intersect because we believe the Chicago race riots is an origin story on this tale of two cities, those that have and those that don't, and that we want to unveil this story to kind of understand how Chicago became to look the way it does today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, fellas, I, I want you to know I could sit here and talk about Chicago for the remainder of this, but because we, we have some listeners outside of the city, I want to broaden the conversation a little bit. Um, Peter, talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the bloody summer. I, if you could, uh, I want to kind of put you on the spot here. Can you name for me all of the cities, not all of them, but as many as you can remember, uh, that dealt with some sort of, you know, what we generally call race riot, but some sort of destruction of black communities. Can you name some of those communities? Rosewood, Tulsa, uh, Chicago, Detroit, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, Oakland, L.A., Harlem, East St. Louis, St. Louis. Um, uh, the list, I guess, goes on, but how's that? Yeah, yeah. So it's all over. I, that that makes a lot of sense. I think people don't necessarily know 
um, how widespread this kind of sort of racial violence is. I agree 100%. So during World War I, a huge labor shortage emerged. Um, simultaneously, there were millions of American men pulled into the US Army. Um, millions of European immigrants stopped coming. Um, and as a result of the increased demand for workers, suddenly employers across industrial cities who previously had refused to hire black men and women suddenly had no alternative. Right. Um, and so that really was the most immediate spark for the um, migration during that moment. Right. Is this labor shortage right now. And so as African-Americans, 50,000 come to Chicago within a five year period, but half a million during World War One. Right. Like across the country. And so we're seeing then among white people in these cities that previously had smaller black populations shocked. Right. Like and sometimes upset. Right. They see this as economic competition, although I hate to reduce everything to job competition. In fact, during the war, there wasn't. It was after the war that there was job competition. Um, but also in housing and neighborhoods, a subject that I think we highlight a great deal, um, because if there's more black people, suddenly they're going to live in places that previously hadn't had black people. Right. Like uh, especially as density increases and black people do what anyone would do is seek um, higher quality housing at a lower price. Right. Um, also politically, um, black people can start to actually engage in um, registering to vote and voting. So in Chicago, actually, although blacks are still only 4% of the population in 1919, they actually are a really important swing vote in a mayor's race in 1919. But that was the case in other places where suddenly African-Americans have a little bit of political power, right? Um, and so uh, also you have African-Americans in the so-called new Negro movement, right? Two and three generations removed from enslavement themselves essentially the grandchildren of slaves who were less tolerant of sort of um, accepting white power, right? Um, and more assertive of their rights as humans and as Americans, right? Like, uh, and so between these economic, political, um, uh, neighborhood and sort of identity issues, right? Um, we've got a mix, right? That then when sparks flare, like the killing of a black boy, right? In Lake Michigan, then, um, you know, uh, sort of it explodes, right? Um, I mean, one murder is bad enough, but why does one murder turn into 38, right? It's because there was something more than just the killing of Eugene Williams. It was actually um, these deeper underlying issues that were revealed, right, um, uh, as a result of the killing of one individual. And I think that the George Floyd, um, has that incident, as well as Breonna Taylor and countless others, there's this term called being gaslit. Um, essentially where we see with our very own eyes, we know what's going on and we're told that something else is happening, right? And I think that the there's this overall consciousness that the situation that we're in now is not related to individual behavior. It's not related to our belief systems or our values, but it's actually related to large scale structural changes that have been influenced by white supremacy, that have been influenced as Bell Hooks talks about white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism, right? And so there is a raised critical consciousness because you can't tell us that something's happening that we see with our very own eyes and tell us that it's something different. And so I think that we are in a, in a wonderful place right now. And as Peter said, that as, as a culture, we have been in this place before, right? We have been in places where art has been used to really convey our our human experiences, our experiences working through oppression. I think the one reason why Tulsa is so important to folks is that 
despite these oppressive forces, you know, many people know Tulsa as AKA Black Wall Street. Look what Black folks were able to do in the face of oppression. Look what Black folks were able to, to do economically, right? It wasn't simply about how we were able to achieve through arts or through athletics, but look what we were able to do economically. I think that that resonates with the humanity of Black folks. You know, you mentioned something that I really uh, want to hit on quickly in your answer, and that's the idea of how these past events affect where we are today. And so I guess my question for you is this period of, of destruction that we saw, what effects did that have on things like recovery, you know, relocation, uh, this, this, you know, I imagine black families reevaluating their, their livelihood and how they go about existing in this country. Well, Frank was the expert, but I'll just say one quick thing. Um, uh, because uh, sort of the effects of trauma on uh, sort of black people and black communities is really his expertise, right? Like uh, um, all this violence did not actually stop black people from moving north. Right? Like uh, it gives us a sense actually about how bad it was in the South, right? Like I mean that actually after the Chicago race right of 1919, African-Americans kept coming to Chicago. As for how um, the sort of the impacts, um, I do want to defer to Franklin because like I said, his, his, his field of public health is very much on point here. Yeah, no, you know, uh, thank you. And, you know, I think that the, the, the general thing is specifically around collective trauma um, and, and that collective trauma, but also the other part of that is, is resilience, right? So, you know, after, you know, after the 1919, you know, the Red Summer, um, you see uh, a black renaissance period that's built up. You, you see a, a double down on black institutions. Um, you know, the, the Urban League is, 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 is expanding tremendously. Um, you, these institutions that are there are sources to really help us through our collective trauma. The role that the church has played, particularly in the, the role that the church played with the civil rights movement, right? So what ways are we able to address the trauma that we've been faced but also collectively come together and organize. And so those organizing principles we begin to see that are driven largely through youth groups, um, thanks to black institutions are continuing to move that along. But, you know, just like the, the matrix, we're talking about film, there's always a new nuance, a new mechanism that happens, right? And so as Peter, you know, discussed, you know, we black population continued to come. You know, I think the black population um, between uh, the 1950s and 1980s, um, at least of Chicago, increased by 600,000, right? So Black folks were still coming. I think the racial wealth gap between Blacks and whites in the city of Chicago, and I, I apologize for speaking to Chicago, but what was at its lowest, but the white population began to fly out, right? Pra private practices, federal government practices, particularly to housing, impacted where whites had the ability to go that Blacks didn't. And then instead, what you see is that you see our governments, our local and federal, begin to double down on criminal justice instead of services that would benefit Black folks as they continue to go through these traumatic experiences. So unfortunately, there's a disproportionate amount of uh, funding, public funding, that goes towards criminal justice and not towards these social services that can address this individual and collective level trauma that we have been facing. Uh, I, I want to ask you all, because we've been talking about all this sort of destruction that can come with 
black communities, how important is it to have something of your own, to have these, these black areas that, that have some, where black folks have some agency in sort of the communities they live in? And, you know, I think, again, that's why Tulsa resonates so well with many people, is that in the face of oppressive forces, um, Black folks, when given space, can create their own. That's what, you know, resonated with Rosewood, you know, also another great film that I think might have been from the late 90s um, that was, that captured that, you know, historic town in terms of how Black folks who have been systematically contained, disrupted, and stigmatized, despite those forces, have still been able to generate economic wealth, spending money, you know, in other businesses, supporting other Black businesses, supporting each other as residents, providing social support, coming together. Real community, real strong communities have what we call in sociology, informal social control. What is our ability to uplift the norms, the beliefs that we have for our own community, not having outside agents, but um, enforcing our own belief systems with each other. We know that our institutions such as the church, um, our black families have been consistent with that. And so resilience has been a part of the through line as well. Despite these oppressive forces, in what ways have we been able to be resilient, right? So there are signs, whether it's Rosewood or whether it's a uh, community in Tulsa, um, whether it is the, the areas in Bronzeville um, that economically had viable institutions, whether there were banks, insurance companies. Um, and so black folks know that we can do this. However, the mechanisms continue to shift, as I mentioned. There's always a new mechanism, right? The Red Summer, that mechanism was violence. The mechanism after that was uh, policies, private policies, as well as federal policies when it came to housing, right? The mechanisms after that, deindustrialization, where are the jobs going? They're going outside of the city. Well, the, the, the relationship with housing, black folks can't develop a nest egg or build equity through housing the way white folks can. So now the jobs are following them. The jobs are no longer in the city. Where's the city investment going now? Criminal justice, the mechanism is changing, right? And so um, black folks know that despite these different mechanisms, if we can have the space to create our own without being oppressed by physical violence or private practices and laws um, and how money is being spent, that we can create our own. So we know what the answer is. We have evidence such as Tulsa, um, but we're constantly fighting these oppressive mechanisms. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a perfect place to leave it. Um, you know, you mentioned resilience and I, I want to tell you all um, good luck. And I'm wishing you all all the best on the Chicago Race Ride of 1919 Commemoration Project. I hope that when I'm going to that Walgreens right on 35th and uh, uh, 35th and MLK that I can sort of see what you all have done. Uh, and, and again, good luck, fellas. I, I appreciate you taking some time. Thank you, Jamal. Thank you so much. Just close your eyes and imagine a city built and run from the ground up by us and for us. This is what civil rights leader Floyd McKissick had in mind in the 1960s when he secured federal funding, $14 million of it, 
for the 3,500-acre black utopian town in North Carolina, Soul City. When asked about the viability of a town built and run by black people, McKissick took it back to the plantation and said, on the plantations, the work was done by blacks, the black engineers, black cooks, the black blacksmith, the black carpenter, and the black roofer. They all controlled the destiny of the white man. McKissick thought Soul City would be home to 50,000 people and generate 24,000 jobs within the first 30 years of its existence. We have his son, who served as the former planning chief of Soul City, here on the podcast today. Floyd McKissick Jr., welcome to the Hall Pass Podcast, and thank you for being here. I, you know, I just went over your bio not too long ago, and I want to get into Soul City in a moment, but I read this article, uh, a Guardian article, and it has a picture of Martin Luther King Jr., your father, and Stokely Carmichael, all arm in arm. And I guess I'm wondering, uh, it, did you have famous civil rights leaders coming by the house on a regular basis, or is this just kind of, uh, uh, you know, a, a special photograph? Uh, no, I mean, I knew all of them. I mean, Stokely was like an older brother to me. Uh, I can remember uh, back in the Meredith March in Mississippi, um, Stokely and I actually stayed um, in the same home uh, as uh, people who were participating in that rally and in that march. And so, I mean, you know, I, I had a chance to know all of the major civil rights leaders, such as Roy Wilkins, NAACP, James Farmer, Poor, uh, Whitney Young of the Urban League, uh, and of course, Dr. King and, uh, and Stokely. And, um, you know, they, they were all people who you had immediate access to on all occasions. And many of the civil rights leaders uh, participated in some of the same rallies and, uh, um, and protest um, on, on common issues of concern and, con and cause related to the civil rights movement. And then later, uh, even related to uh, protest against the war in Vietnam. So, you know, I want to ask a little bit about that time. Talk a little bit about, um, you know, you served as a planning chief on this project. Talk a little bit about the, I guess, the energy around what was going on and, and the fact that you were trying to do something uh, that had never been done before. This idea of a, a black run, uh, a black created for us, by us town um, uh, in, in rural North Carolina. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, Soul City was, as I say, the only one, the company that was an African-American development company that uh, was pursuing a new town project here in the United States underneath that program established by HUD um, and by Congress, I should say, and overseen by HUD. Now, I mean, it was envisioned to be a community that would certainly uh, attract blacks to live there, but it wasn't viewed as being a city that would be open only to blacks. And in fact, our development team had uh, blacks as well as whites uh, that were part of what we were doing. And uh, it was envisioned that it would be a community that would be inviting where African-American entrepreneurship, African-American talent could all come together to build that project and to run and operate businesses and to do what was necessary to have a fully uh, functioning community. Um, but we were hardly a year into the project when Jesse Helms, um, who was recently elected to the Senate from North Carolina, who was a segregationist during the days of the civil rights movement and considered himself an arch enemy of my father's and everything my dad was doing in civil rights in North Carolina, asked for an audit of the Soul City project uh, and, and basically sent in the general accounting office out of Washington 
there were people from the Justice Department. There were all types of folks coming in to basically do investigations. And those investigations took about a year, year and a half, and uh, and they kind of paralyzed uh, some of the development taking on in that period. We could not move at the pace that we would have liked to at, at that date and time and era. So, I mean, you, you, you now they gave us a complete clean bill of health financially, no improprieties, no wrongdoing. Um, everything was uh, considered to be uh, in, in proper in proper condition based upon what the development project was doing. But, you know, it, it had an adverse impact on, on reputation, on image, and our ability to move forward as constructively uh, at the pace we would have liked when we needed to do so. So, I mean, racism was, was a problem, to be honest with you. And then and you don't usually see uh, a person who's a U.S. senator um, or somebody like Congressman Elliot Fountain, um, who was a congressman from that area, you know, sitting there in Washington trying to stop the flow of federal funds and jobs and development into their districts. But that's what happened. But notwithstanding that, we were able to accomplish a lot in a fairly uh, a reasonable period of time. We were instrumental in working with the city of Oxford and the city of Henderson and building the largest regional water system uh, that exists even today in the state of North Carolina and that we consist at that time bringing water from Kerr Lake. This conversation always brings me back to this idea of, um, you know, white flight and the fact that in many people's eyes, it feels like the black community uh, finds itself sort of chasing the white community, whether it be for um, the proper school funding, whether it be for safety. Um, and, and I guess my question is, do you think we need something like this now? You know, if, if, if it is even possible now, um, a community that is, you know, sort of uh, built for everyone, but with black people in mind, is that something that, that, that you feel like there is a need for now in the way that you all saw a need for it uh, when Soul City was first created? I, I think there's as much of a need for it now, if not a greater need for it now. I mean, you know, there have been many glass ceilings that have been broken to give people access to opportunities that didn't exist back in the 70s. But at the same time, I mean, there are a lot of people who left the South and migrated to the major urban areas. And Soul City recognized that years ago. Uh, they were looking for jobs and opportunities. They ended up in urban ghettos, uh, you know, and did not have those opportunities that they sought. Part of what Soul City sought to do was to allow those people a place that they could return to. Uh, the county where we located had a population that was about 67, 68% African American. Those people didn't feel they had to leave to go to those areas. And, and I think today there, there's a desire particularly among African-Americans as well as other groups that support the ideologies that are professed by Black Lives Matter that could be welcome the opportunity to, to, to live together harmoniously in a community where equal opportunity to access and jobs was the norm rather than the exception. Uh, and which, you know, where Black entrepreneurship uh, was incentivized. Uh, there's more black wealth today in this country than there's ever been in the past. Uh, so many of the people in entertainment, so many of the people in business, so many of the athletes that are out there, wouldn't it be wonderful if they could have a goal to create a new town or a new community that could build and capitalize 
collectively off of their resources, give them a return. It doesn't have to be benevolent. You know, it can be profitable for them. But most importantly, it would be socially redeeming and significant to do something for those that don't have the same chances that they might have had or to pull together the brain power, the talent, the resources that can fuel opportunities for growth for the next generation to come. Um, that's what it's about. And if those, if they're black entrepreneurs, if they're uh, people in the field of technology, if they're people in whatever those avenues may be that can have an opportunity to get in the door, to get in the ground game, to have access to capital, the greatest challenge today, even in the African-American community, for business people, uh, it is access to capital on the same terms that it would be available to uh, white and, and mainstream businesses. Um, it's not always there. Uh, so, I mean, can, can there be a desire to articulate what that plan might be, to articulate what needs to occur to make it happen, and to build the resources to make it come to fruition? I think the answer is yes, but it takes the collective will of people who are like-minded to do so. Yeah, yeah, I think that is extremely important. And I, you know, that leads me to my next question, which is um, the idea of black folks sort of participating in uh, this community, you know, at least from what I read, you know, there was there was some trouble getting commitment to Soul City from, you know, black Americans. And I guess my, my question is, uh, where do you think that hesitation uh, came from? And were you kind of surprised to see it? Well, I mean, I, I'll put it like this. I think that uh, th there was probably some hesitation that existed, but in that daytime and era, so many people in the African-American community that had acquired a level of wealth and affluence, they were not as concerned about opening the same doors for others that they had walked through. So, I mean, I, I think it takes a certain level of uh, understanding that we need to collectively come together for that common good um, as much as anything else and to patronize each other and to help build each other, uh, particularly in a way that uh, I've always respected significantly among Jewish businesses and the Jewish community. Um, and there were many people that were Jewish that helped African-Americans, you know, through the civil rights movement, through their donations to, to groups like CORE. I mean, you know, so, I mean, I, I think there was also some in, in that daytime and era. Yes. And I, you hear me use that expression a lot that you were still at a point where people were having to get comfortable with the idea of being black. They identified as being Negro. They identified as being colored and that vernacular was not quite in sync with the times yet among some groups that were um, particularly um, more affluent African-Americans to be completely candid. Um, so, and, and some of the more affluent ones were frequently more conservative ones. So, I mean, you would have seen some pushback and resistance among some, but I think there was also an understanding among many that this was a great idea that they 
would like to have supported if if there were avenues for them to do so. So I think some were waiting to see what would happen. They might have been more reluctant because they were waiting to see what would occur before they jumped on that bandwagon, so to speak. Absolutely, absolutely. Does that answer your question? I mean, you're getting pure <laughs> trend of thought from me. You realize? Yeah, no, it does. It does. I, I think that that is, um, I don't know, a constant sort of issue when it comes to how to resolve these sort of issues. You know, uh, I, I look at an issue right now, like policing, for example. You know, there are all of the black community wants to have this thing figured out and solved and yet the way to go about doing it is is all over the place and i mean i think that has always been the case you know i i commented early on a picture of you know your father arm in arm with stokely carmichael and mlk who both you know wanted some form of black liberation and had very different ideas about how to get there and i imagine uh black economic liberation is something similar Oh, I think it is. Absolutely. I think, you know, there, there are different ideas of different philosophies back in that time. And I'm sure there, there are differences, differences today. But, you know, it takes somebody who can help to get people to coalesce and to think about the common ground and, and what we can do to move forward uh, and help establish something that everybody can have a stake in, everybody can be proud of, and everybody can feel as if they've done something to uplift and open doors for the next generation. So, I mean, you know, um, I think those opportunities exist, existed then. They exist today. Uh, in fact, today, I'd say there's greater opportunity to do so um, because there's probably greater wealth um, that's held in the hands of a far wider number than there was at that time. I want to tell you, I think this is my first time, you know, speaking with someone who I may actually read about in the history book. So I, <laughs> I thank you for speaking with me this morning. Hey, thank you all for tuning in. As always, you can catch us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. If you like what you heard today, check out our Instagram and Twitter at BAPS Productions. Have another lesson plan to add to the Hall Pass curriculum? Just slide in our DMs. This is Jamal Landris, and this is Hall Pass the Podcast.